Good morning. This, uh, this Sunday is the last uh, of our series, We Are Family. Uh, after this, we will be proceeding into our summer series. Uh, you, I do not think that verse means what you think it means. Uh, we are going to take uh, maybe a dozen of the most abused passages of Scripture uh, indicate uh, how they're often misread and uh, then suggest better ways that we can read them. Uh, I'll also remind you that, uh, uh, as you may have noticed, uh, this building is not air-conditioned, uh, and not all the days are as lovely as this one, so please uh, do dress comfortably, um, and uh, we will generally in the uh, summer uh, have services that are on the shorter side. Um, as I mentioned, today's the last series, uh, last in the series, We Are Family, uh, and uh, today we're talking about fatherhood on Father's Day. Now, this is the first time that we've talked about fatherhood on Father's Day, much as a month and a half ago it was the first time that we talked about motherhood on Mother's Day. One of the reasons for that uh, is, as some have mentioned, Father's Day and Mother's Day can be very difficult for some people based on the relationships they have uh, with their parents uh, or don't that they would like to. Uh, but the other reason, and, and probably the main one, is that we come here on Sunday mornings to worship Jesus and not to worship any other worthy institutions. So you'll notice on July 4th that we're not draping an altar with a flag. You'll notice on Earth Day that we're not all uh, wearing garlands on our heads. And uh, on Arbor Day, we're not giving out uh, trees during the middle of the service because we want to make sure that we're not distracting from the real reason that we're here. And it's, a, it's a, an easy thing to fall into. Having said that, I hope that we can, uh, we can avoid that today. Uh, Mark, if you can throw the, the picture up here. Uh, I, I saw a cartoon this week. I, I am one of those people who still actually reads the cartoons. Uh, this one, uh, for those of you who can't read, uh, I wish mommy would come out here and tell me I shouldn't be doing this. Uh, but said by the kid who's climbing up on the fence and is about to fall here. You got it? Okay. Uh, this reminded me of one of the first lessons in parenting that, uh, that I was aware I was learning. Of course, I learned all kinds of lessons in parenting growing up, uh, but uh, this is one of the first ones I was aware of learning. I was uh, at, at college, and there was one of these picnics that they were having where the faculty and their families came and the, kid, and the, the students came and we all were hanging out. This must have been... I think this would have been in the fall. This would have been early in the semester because I was talking to my professors and not hiding from them because I owed them work. Uh, and I remember I was talking to one of my uh, political science professors, and uh, I said, so, you know, do you, have, do you have kids that are here? And he said, yeah, there are a couple of them that are over there. Uh, and he pointed to these children who were playing on a wall that seemed fairly high, like, you know, not so high that it would be life-threatening to fall off, but, but high enough that a kid could probably get hurt pretty bad. And, and I said, wow, that, uh, that wall's kind of high. Professor, are you, are you worried that they might fall off and hurt themselves? And he said, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, they might. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty coordinated, but they might. But, you know, kids' bones heal quickly. And it was there that I was introduced to the important principle of fatherhood known as benign neglect. <laughs> this summer, Chris is going to be taking his son out into the desert. This is the kind of thing some people do and never come back from. I feel fairly confident 
that very few mothers as a rite of passage for their children will take them out into the desert and do these kinds of dangerous things. This is one of the reasons that it's good for children to have both mothers and fathers. That's one of the reasons that that tends to work out well, is that there's somebody in the house to encourage them to do things that could get them hurt, or at least to allow them plenty of room in which to do so. Yesterday I was uh, driving by the Miller's house, and there Joe and Amy were with James out there on his two-wheeler for the first time. Of course, he had his training wheels on, and he had his bike helmet on. And I did not choose at that moment to talk about the study by neurologists that says that bike helmets actually may end up being less safe than not wearing one because you feel too confident when you're riding. Uh, But the day will come when James will ride his two-wheeler without the training wheels, and that will probably involve him falling and scraping his knees and crying and bleeding and such things. And it is a fairly safe bet that it will not be Amy who takes off the training wheels. Usually it's dad or grandpa who takes off the training wheels. Because that's one of the things that dads do. I am fairly confident that, in, again, I'm not an ornithologist, but I think in bird families it's probably the dad who kicks the little birdies out of the nest and tells them, they, you better fly. And I remember when I was a kid growing up, I had, uh, I, I, I had this lemonade stand that I would, that I would do. Uh, I got the brilliant idea one day that, what I, that, that uh, because in the real world more people drank soda than lemonade, what I should do is I should sell soda at my lemonade stand. I, of course, did not have a soda dispenser or the necessary permits for this. Uh, So I decided that what I should do is go down to the convenience store and buy a bunch of cups of soda, which they had put on sale that week. And my parents assured me this was a dumb idea. And they were entirely right about that, but I wasn't hearing that. I'm reminded of uh, the story the rabbis tell about Abraham, where Abraham is uh, set to work in his father's idol shop. And this big strong guy comes in and he says, well, I need a a big strong idol because I'm big and strong. And so Abraham helps him pick one out and he picks it and as the guy's about to pay for it, Abraham says, you know, it's kind of ironic that somebody as strong as you needs a piece of wood to worship. The guy gets upset and he leaves in a huff. Then an older woman comes in and she says, well, you know, I need an idol who's very wise because I'm old and wise. And so he helps her pick it out and as she's going to pay, he says, it's, it's funny, if you're so wise, it seems rather foolish that you're worshiping this piece of rock. And so she gets offended and leaves. And his father comes back and says, all right, so how did we do? And I, he says, I didn't sell a single idol. So not, not for the last time somebody said, well, the kid's got no head for business, let's make him a priest. But I decided that I would go down to the convenience store and purchase these sodas, and I did, and I got way too many to to take back on my bike. And so I'm I'm sitting there trying to figure out some way that I'm going to get like six or eight of these things back home on my bike. And as I'm trying to work this process out, spilling things and getting sticky and and clearly not preparing my product for for, uh, uh, attractive presentation, there comes my dad over the hill on his bike. And he, even though he had warned me that this was a stupid idea and that this would probably not go well, 
Nevertheless, he came down and he helped me to carry those stupid sodas back. And I sat at my table all afternoon. I didn't sell a single one. So perhaps we could modify this principle of benign neglect to be temporary benign neglect followed by helping you clean up the mess you made, which is perhaps a fuller way of describing what fathers are supposed to do. Now, of course, one of the pictures that were given for God in the scriptures is that of Father. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, address God as Father. And, and you get this fathering picture both directly, literally, and indirectly. One of, the, one of my favorite places where I see that is in Genesis, in chapter 3. You know, the story of the fall, where the, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. And he says to, to Eve, he says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she said to him, well, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, lest you die. Oh, you're not going to die, the serpent said. See, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and was desirable for gaining wisdom as well, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, geniuses that they were, hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh, God, called to the man, where are you? Now, let me pause for a moment here. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is sort of a gratuitous uh, intro to the, uh, I do not think that verse means what you think it means uh, series. This will be like a little tantalizing preview. Um, there are people out there who will say that this is a text that uh, indicates that God is not omniscient. They will say that because God, God asked, where are you? He did not know where Adam and Eve were. This is stupid. Uh, this is really stupid. I think this is actually willfully stupid. I think the people who say this really do know better. They just choose not to. Who has not played with a kid? Peekaboo. Right? Where are you? It's not like, oh, I do not know where that child... Oh, now I know where the kid... Where is the... <clears throat> anyway. So he says, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So he hid God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And he said, she did it. That woman you put me here with. She gave me some fruit, and, and I, I ate it. And so, of course, then we have the story where God curses the serpent, and he tells Adam, curses the ground because of you, and he tells Eve about all the things that are going to come of this. And then what happens in verse 21? Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So here's a case where God exercises temporary benign neglect. He allows his creatures, made in his image, whom he loves, to choose whether they're going to go his way or go their own way. And he allows them to choose the way that is not right. Yet afterward, what does he do? He helps them to clean up the mess that they've made. 
the first instance of killing that's recorded in the scriptures is right here. Obviously, God himself did not make garments of skin for Adam and his wife without killing one of these animals that he had made and Adam had named. We get this in the story of Israel and how God deals with his people Israel. Basically, the whole of the book of Judges is, is this practice implemented over and over and over and over. One of the things that's most sickening about reading the book of Judges, and it's the same thing you get reading the stories of the monarchy, is you have people making the same dumb mistakes over and over and over and experiencing the same results. And so what happens in Judges is the people are, are safe and then they decide to do their own thing and then they get in trouble and they cry out to God and he sends them these deliverers, these judges. And starting in Judges 2.16, Yahweh raises up judges who saves them out of the hand of the raiders who had been attacking him. Yet they wouldn't listen to the judges. After God had saved them, then they wouldn't listen to them. Rather, they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to Yahweh's commands, whenever Yahweh raised up a judge for them. He was with the judge. He saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for Yahweh had compassion on them as they groaned under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. But then when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods, serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel, and he said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. That was my deal. I was going to drive these nations out before them. I was going to clear the road. I was going to fight for them, fight on their behalf. But no. I'm going to, instead of driving these nations out, I'm going to use them to test Israel, to see whether they will keep the way of Yahweh and walk in it as their forefathers did. And so Yahweh had allowed those nations to remain. He didn't drive them out at once by giving them up into Joshua's hands. In a way, God's like Burger King. He says, have it your way. You insist on having it this way, you can do that. And you can experience the results of your choices. And I love you enough that I'm not going to abandon you after I do so. But I will help you to clean up that mess that you made. One of the most familiar pictures of this, I think, is in the story in Luke's gospel. In Luke 15, usually headlined as the parable of the prodigal son. I think really this is less about the prodigal son than it is about the older brother and how he ought to respond to his father's graciousness. But for those of you who don't remember the story, Jesus says there's a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his, son, to his father, Hey, Dad, why don't you give me my share of the estate? So he divided his property between his sons. Not long after that, the younger son gathered up all that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent all the money he had, there was a severe famine in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, which is not the kind of work a nice Jewish boy wants. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the, the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, Now, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll, I'll set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he, started, he had this speech he had been rehearsing. So he starts in, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, cut his son off. He says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, meanwhile, the older son was out in the field working where he was supposed to be, and when he came to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, what, what's going on? Well, your brother came home, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, the older brother was very angry, and he wouldn't even go into the party, and his father went out and pleaded with him. He said to his father, look, all these years... I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. You, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. As I said, I think primarily Jesus is telling this parable, he's telling this story in order to focus attention on the kind of response that the older brother has. But this works because of the picture he draws of this father. Like with most of Jesus' parables, the character who has responsibility ends up doing things that nobody in responsibility would do. You think of the parable of the servants where the guy goes down to Broadway in the morning and he hires a van load of guys to go work out in his field. And he takes them out there and he says, I'll pay you a fair wage for the day. And then later on, he needs some more workers. So he goes down and he brings them back and, and has them work. And then in the afternoon, he goes back. And then at five o'clock, everybody's about ready to leave the 7-Eleven, but he goes down and he, he picks up a few more guys takes them back to the field, and then when the day comes to an end, they all line up to get their pay. And he pays everybody the same wage. Everybody gets a full day's wage, whether they started off at dawn or whether they started off at 5.30. And the guys who are working all day say, what are you talking, this isn't fair. You can't do this. We worked all day. You're paying us the same thing as this schmo who was only there for 45 minutes, and most of that time he was taking a smoke break. And what does the, the, the vineyard owner reply? He says, look, are you envious because I'm generous? This is my money. I'll do what I want to do with it. If I want to pay these guys the same as you, I'll pay them the same as you. That's up to me. I paid you a fair wage for the day, just as we had agreed. What's your problem? 
Well, Jesus tells this story to demonstrate the graciousness and the generosity and just the, the absolutely extravagant love of God. He doesn't do that to suggest how you ought to handle your employees, because I can guarantee you the next morning when the van went down to Broadway at dawn, nobody would have gotten in. He would have had major labor troubles if he had kept doing this. Nobody would do this. This is why it's an effective story. In the same way here, no self-respecting father, first of all, would liquidate half of his property. I mean, obviously, if this is a going concern to take half of its value out means you're taking a whole lot of, of productive capital out of use so that you can give it to your son who's going to go off and go whoring in another town. Nobody's going to do this. You know, self-respecting father who is in charge of running his business is going to hang out on the hills waiting for his long-lost son to come back. He's got better things to do. He certainly isn't going to humiliate himself by running after this kid who's coming at him. The story works because in some ways the character is so implausible. That's Jesus' point usually when he's telling these parables. This is, he says this is what God's like. You can't understand that. You can't make sense of it. Right, because he's different from you. Because he doesn't treat us the way we would treat us, which is good news for us. And in this case, you have the Father receiving with mercy and love and joy the Son who suffered the results of his own choices. The Father gave him the freedom to do as he wished. And then when he came to himself, father received him back. Now, I don't think I would want to be the younger son at the breakfast table the next day. I certainly don't think I'd want to be the younger son after the old man passes away and his brother is in charge of the farm. And I'm sure that kind of business would have been dealt with if this were anything close to a real story, but that's, again, not the reason Jesus tells these stories. We learn from this what kind of father God is like. He's a father who is not only willing to allow us to do something stupid, he's willing to do something so humiliating as to walk his bike down to the convenience store and stack up a bunch of cups of flat, warm soda to bring it back so his son can fail at selling them all afternoon. This is the kind of God that we have. And knowing that God is that kind of father, it behooves us to be aware of this pattern that we have of going our own way and realizing the mess that we have made of things and then coming to our father who is rich in mercy to receive his forgiveness his help in cleaning up the mess that we have made. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are grateful that you are our loving Father. You are the Father who gives us the freedom, the room to learn 
often the hard way, but that you don't leave us there. We're grateful that you love us so much that you were willing to suffer that ultimate humiliation, not only of taking on real mortal flesh with all of its problems, but suffering humiliating death on the cross so that you could bring us back to you, the God and Father of us all. In light of this, we give you praise this morning. We ask that by your Spirit you would show us where we have gone our own way continue to give us the grace to lean on you to repair what we've broken. Pray that we would be your agents of reconciliation not only in our own lives but in our relationships with others and with you and with this world you've given us. And all this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.